Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to Headstrong. My name is Louis Strong and I host this show. If this is the first time you are listening to Headstrong, this is a podcast where I sit down with a number of individuals in the public eye to talk to them about their lives and their careers to understand what the word Headstrong means to them. Now this series, I have been chatting to a number of cricketers, both past and present, in a series coined and innings with. This series has been generously sponsored by Ascot Group and McGill and Partners. I cannot thank them enough for their support throughout this series. The guests I've spoken to have been wonderful. I've spoken to Joss Butler, Don Best, Jason Holder, Tino Best, some wonderful, wonderful people and cricketers who have all had stellar careers. This is the final episode of Headstrong Season 5 and Innings With. And I am finishing it off with an absolute legend of the cricket game. I am joined by Sir Andrew Strauss. This series, we have been supporting the Ruth Strauss Foundation. And because of Sir Andrew, it is rooted in the game of cricket. But this episode tackles a lot more important things than just the game of cricket. We talk about his late wife, Ruth, and the incredibly important work that the Ruth Strauss Foundation does. So I really hope that you enjoy this episode of Headstrong. And if you would like to donate to the charity, please text RSF10 to 70191. Do enjoy the episode. Uh, Sir Andrew, thank you very much for joining me on Headstrong. It, uh, It means a lot that you're joining me, although it seems like you've got a bit of a better deal than I do. Uh, yeah, well, hey, it's a pleasure to be here, uh, and well, it's a, it's a pleasure to be here, which is in Barbados. <laughs> so um, it's definitely a pleasure to be here, but it's also a pleasure to to be on your podcast, and obviously, you know, delighted that you guys are supporting the Ruth Strauss Foundation as well. So really happy to support. No, we're we're really, really, really pleased to be sorting such a one supporting such a wonderful charity. Uh, I just wanted to um, to ask you if you actually think you could recognise me or not. Uh, we are on Zoom. I've met you probably, I think, three or four times now. There's only one occasion where I think you might remember it, or two, but one I will is quite funny. Oh no, this is bad. I mean, I I have the worst memory for both names and faces, which is never a good thing. But um, but perhaps perhaps you've got a bit more facial hair than the last time I met you. I think you're probably right. So the first time you'll probably think was a bit more interesting than the second. The first time was uh, I was at, we were at school and you came to a charity event. Yeah, I do remember that very well. Yeah. Uh, and the the second occasion actually, uh, you this one you'll probably <laughs> enjoy was with Mike O'Connor. Uh, yeah. you'd, give, you'd given a net uh, to a charity auction and we turned up to Lords. Uh, 
having a lovely time going going to a cricket net with yourself and 45 minutes goes by no sign of the yeah. england skipper uh, yeah and okay. mike gets yeah. on the phone and gives uh, sir andrew a call and says uh, where are you and you go i don't know what you're talking about uh, yeah 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 down I do the road. and then we did get some special treatment so uh, luckily you did turn up and we had some good time in the net <laughs> that was not one of my proudest moments yeah i've got to be honest which is um it's that was the sort of nudge that, that told me I needed to get a PA. So hopefully I'm a little bit better organised now. Uh, absolutely. <laughs> well, I'm I'm talking to you now at the time of a vaccine being distributed here in the UK, and that's obviously why you find yourself out stranded. I'm going to put very loosely. Uh, out yeah. Barbados. Um, and it, yeah, as I say, it's a very it's been a heartbreaking and disastrous kind of 2020. But I don't want to go into too much detail of how you've been over that year, but how do you reflect on it almost um, and how that year has passed from a personal perspective and your family perspective? Mm. Well, look, I, I mean, it's been a long, you know, I hate that expression, but it's been a long journey for everyone, hasn't it? And, um, you know, I, I think my overall reflection is, you know, it, it's made us appreciate the things that we don't, we take for granted so so often. So, you know, our own individual health being the, the obvious one, um, which, you know, especially as as younger people, we, we, we tend to feel like we're kind of infallible and that we're going to live forever. And, and obviously, COVID has, has sort of brought it into the front of our minds just how important um, our, our health is. And then also, you know, what we miss out on and, and what we need to treasure. So, you know, that, that time with friends and family, um, you know, when it's there all the time, perhaps we don't, we don't appreciate it and we don't use it and and we we don't get around to getting in touch with people etc uh, when it's not there you realize actually that's very much the essence of all our well-being is is how we interact with people it's 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 being able to spend time with our our parents and our siblings um and also to spend time with our children as well and i suppose that has been one upside of this actually is you know um homeschooling and everything we, we've kind of been in each other's company a bit more than perhaps we would otherwise and um and that both brings pros and cons so the the pros are you do get a bit more one-on-one face time with your kids Uh, on the downside uh we're sort of living each other's pockets a bit more which can make things a bit combustible (laughs) at times but um absolutely yeah and so it's you know it's it's definitely been a, a voyage of discovery for all of us and it's tested our our resilience and and our um you know, our, yeah, it's just, it's forced us all to ask questions of ourselves and we know we're going to come out the other side and we'll, we know we'll be better for it. But while we're going through it all, and I, I sort of hesitate to say that given that I'm in the sunshine in Barbados at the moment, but it, we've all had to dig pretty deep as well, haven't we? Absolutely. I mean, I do, before we do come on to talk about the incredible work of the foundation and particularly some of the, the, the points that you talked about there, I, d- I would like to talk to you briefly about COVID itself and perhaps the way that it's portrayed in the news, because certainly from a personal perspective, when I do watch the news, and I am reluctant to say that I do occasionally because it is actually quite, you know, it's, it's not an enjoyable experience at the moment, but they, they talk of of the death toll as a figure and a statistic and not necessarily the personal yeah. aspect of it, which is quite challenging. And ultimately there are people's lives that being, you know, wholly affected by this. How is it possible that we can change that outlook instead of reading into the statistic as opposed to the personal aspect of the, the, um, the COVID itself? Yeah. I mean, I, I think that's a really interesting point you, you, you make and, you know, at all times the, the, the government being talked talking about being guided by the science and whatever and you're obviously looking at data and statistics as a way of judging how well we're handling the the pandemic or otherwise i mean you know i think for me you're absolutely right to to focus on every single one of those people that either has died or has been in intensive care or whatever it's been a hugely traumatic experience and then you know factor on top of that the fact that so many people have died without their loved ones being there with them you know and i think that that is the one that really gets me you know having been through a similar situation with ruth you know that the the power you know not the power is probably not the right word but the peace that we found in those last uh months weeks days and hours where we were able to be with each other and, and kind of go through that experience together so you know that that bit I feel very strongly about. Um, I know it can't be helped, but um, mm-hmm. you know 
it's that that must be incredibly lonely for people that are you know they're in intensive care struggling to breathe and not having those that they love or that they they rely on most around them so always important we we keep conscious of that and um you know i, I definitely i certainly hope you know in, in the set you know this is not this is not like a war but it, it's it's the same sort of feeling sometimes that um we're going through an extraordinary set of circumstances and you just hope that out of this some good can come no, and absolutely. it's not all doom and gloom and we, we move to a better place once we're out the other side I think, I think having an optimistic approach is fundamental at the moment. But uh, you briefly touched on it there, talking about your homeschooling. What has your teaching been like? Uh, I've, I've tended to be quite hands-off for, for all <laughs> sorts of reasons. A, because um, most of what my boys are doing now, I, can, I can't remember what. I can't, <laughs> I'm not in a position to help them with it. Um, B, because I just irritate them when I'm around too much. Um, and C, because... Uh, you know, we all need our own space, but, um, but, you know, I, I think it's almost outside of school. It's kind of like the book ending of lessons. So before or afterwards or having a bit of lunch together or, you know, just having the space to have a conversation and a chat, that, that's the gold dust, um, which is, which is difficult for parents. Yeah. You know, I'm noticing more and more that as the kids get older, my, my kids are 15 and 12, that, you know, they're, they're looking towards their peer group much probably more than they are their parents. So, uh, you know, any opportunity I can to, I, I can, where I can make a slight difference and, and interact with them is good from my perspective. So the, you're finding that balance there then, I suppose. And it's not ultimately necessarily about the education, but the interactions thereafter as well. That's really Yeah, nice. of course. Yeah, Definitely. absolutely right. Yeah. I imagine that your children are probably experiencing a slightly different childhood to as to what you were experiencing at a very young age. I mean, I know they're a bit older now, but you, you were brought up in your early years out, out in South Africa. Do you have uh, any particular fond uh, early memories before you moved over here in the UK? Do you have any? Uh, any- yeah. <laughs> yeah. So many fond early memories because I, you know, I think, I mean, this is going to make me sound very old now, but it's, it's also a reflection on South Africa as a country. You know, when I was young, there was no real TV, you know, TV mm. came on in South Africa at like 6 PM and it was alternate nights, you know, one night it was English, other, next night it was Afrikaans and whatever. So TV didn't play a big role in my bringing until, you know, perhaps I was nine or 10. Um, and obviously with great climate and weather, you know, we're outdoors doing stuff and, you know, going on safari and all that sort of stuff. So, you know, I, I have that sort of very kind of, um, you know th- those fond memories of a really simple life actually where my my sisters and i had to sort of keep ourselves occupied and and you know think up games and whatever to play um and uh you know i know that my kids really haven't had that you know the, the world is a very different place these days and you know my one of my primary struggles is to try and get them off off their video games and whatever which yeah, i'm so, so many other parents are going through the same thing so it is a different world and I kind of heart back to those days. Um, quite hard for us to get back there, I suppose. That feels like that horse is bolted. We are lucky, of course, to be speaking uh, from so far away, though. So we've got to thank technology for something. That is true. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm very familiar with both schools that you went to, Court and Radley, having played them both when I was at school as well. Um, maybe in a slightly different um, era to yourself without being rude. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, yeah, absolutely. No. But do you remember You've definitely got more hair than I've got. <laughs> <laughs> do you remember that transition of family life from South Africa to the UK much? Because it sounds very much like you went from this um, simple but incredibly enjoyable life to a bit more of a, a busier life because I know exactly what boarding school is like. Uh, and it sounds like you kind of were really kind of thrown into the deep end somewhat. Uh, yeah, I, I, I wouldn't make too much of it. I, I, I definitely think, you know, that whole kind of boarding school upbringing, um, you know, it, it's uh, you become part of an institution and your peer group become a, a very important part in your lives and whatever. Um, and I loved it all, you know, being a, good at sport and, you know, I, those schools are really well set up for someone like myself. I don't think they were necessarily well set up for everyone, let's mm. put it that way. Um but, uh, and certainly, you know, like, like all of us, the first couple of years of boarding were, was quite confronting for me and, you know, got homesick and all that sort of stuff. But I, I, when I look back at the career I ended up having, I think boarding school prepared me really well for that. You know what I mean? Being away from home, uh, traveling around, uh, being in a team environment, you know, that, that was very much the, the upbringing I had. And I, I didn't feel 
out of place at all touring around the world. Whereas I know that some of my teammates for both Middlesex and England, you know, that was completely sort of diametrically opposite to their upbringing. And so they struggled and they got homesick and they felt very difficult, very hard to be away from home for long periods. So, um, yeah, I suppose I was lucky. I, I, I got prepared well for, for the career I had. Yeah, I think I, oh, I, I was going to talk to you about everything that you touched on there, the kind of adaptable features of boarding school into a, into a, a professional sports setting i know that from a personal perspective that boarding school shaped me in a way that you know it's, it's such a competitive environment and everyone is striving for success ultimately and to be the best and it's full of testosterone particularly in an all-boys school uh, um but ultimately that's where some of your lasting friendships come from and i know from personal um from a personal point of view that your best friend or one of your best friends you opened the batting with down at radley didn't you ben hutton which yeah. is magnificent, and I think that's one of the the lasting features of boarding school as well. So, are you, are you would you put your boys in a similar place? Well, interesting. I mean, my my son my sons aren't boarding at the moment actually. Although uh, my older son's at Wellington College, um, I think he's 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 desperate to board now. He's you know he's fifteen, and and I'm quite keen for him to do so. But it, it's <laughs> it's more so. It's not like a. I, I think our own unique set of circumstances meant that it didn't feel right for us. You know, Ruth mm. was not well, and then obviously mm-hmm. Ruth passed away and whatever. So, um, you know, the, 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 the idea that the boys could kind of have slight refuge from that ultra competitive testosterone fueled environment felt right at the time yes. for us. But, um, you know, I, I, de- I definitely don't have any, any, any massive hangups with it. I just think you've got to, you shouldn't just sort of follow that course just because, you know, your dad went to a certain school or your granddad or whatever, you know, I think we should always be questioning what is right for our kids. And, um, you know, those boarding schools, I mean, they're fantastic educational facilities. There's no doubt about it. But um, there's a lot of choice out there these days as well, isn't there? Absolutely. And, And education is always striving for better. And actually, I hope during covid i hope hopefully people are waking up as well realizing that the essential necessity for the remote learning in, in particular and how everyone needs all the all these kind of um laptops and and increasing f- facilities um definitely. yeah and stimulation and you know great role models and mentors mm. and all that sort of stuff hugely important yeah absolutely now i i know for a fact that you were a great rugby player at school as well and i was speaking to a friend um before recording this podcast and he wanted to ask me about some of the transferable skills from sport to sport um, because he uh, yeah. wanted to question whether maybe players or individuals specialise a little bit too early in their their chosen sports. Because we look at the likes of Joss Butler and his hockey uh, ability, which has obviously has been transferable into his into his drives. Yeah. Uh, and then Owen Morgan uh, on the hurling uh, and maybe some of his uh, unorthodox shots. Well, how do you feel about that that um, transferable skills from sport to sport? Yeah, so I think just the, the general point about early specialisation. Um, you know, I, I'm very conflicted with I, I, I My instinct is I think we shouldn't be specialising early. You know, I, I really feel like um, obviously the downsides of sort of burnout and, you know, treating sport too seriously, too young, I think is a really unhealthy thing. Um, the only slight counteraction to that is, you know, the, the, the player, the best players, and when we're competing with teams like India, for instance, where they're, they're playing cricket 11 months of the year outdoors, <laughs> you kind of feel like we, we would be a long way behind if we're not focusing on one sport all the time as well. So, you know, I think instinctively, I still, I, I do feel we should be making sport fun, uh, certainly until the age of 15, 16, you know, for those people at the right top that want to go on and have professional careers and that you should be having it a decent period of time off every year to, to do other sports. And and certainly, you know, when you talk about those transferable skills, I, I, I felt, you know, I, I didn't just play rugby. I played hockey and golf and, you know, any sport with, with a ball, basically. Um, I, I think from rugby, the big thing that transferred over was courage. Mm. You know, I was quite a small guy as fly half and you, you have these big, you know, certainly playing at university, these big, huge guys running at you and, you know, you have to, suck it up and find a way of um, having the courage and the um, the willpower to, to put yourself in harm's way. And, and suddenly, you know, fast forward five years and you're opening the batting against Shoaib Akhtar or someone in a test match and you're in exactly that same place. You know, very easy to be intimidated and feel 
um, like you want to cower down and you know you can't do that. So um, I definitely I definitely felt that from 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 rugby. But, you know, I think every sport I played made influence me in one way. You know, a lot of tennis. I played a lot of tennis and that gives you, you know, it's like better feeling with your hands and stuff like that. So I, de- I definitely feel there is something in that. Um, uh, and I always wish, I've always had this wish that the, the main sports in this country could come together and provide a sort of, you know, effectively a talented kids program to be able to play a, lo- a bit of all those sports and get the, the right sort of coaching and support in place rather than just having, forcing people to just do the one sport. Oh, that's really interesting. I'm, I'm pleased I asked it. <laughs> no, I think that's a, that's a great idea, actually. And yeah, I think everyone deserves the right to certainly play all these sports and come together and bring all these unique skill sets into their own life. Because I suppose they're all transferable through everywhere, every every walk of life, actually. Um, that's yeah, and just I think also, you know, I think we all get caught up in the idea of those, you know, playing sports professionally, which obviously mm. we know that only a tiny, you know, I don't know, 0.1 of a percent probably go on and play. So for everyone else, it is about keeping it fun and light and enjoyable, and you know all that stuff about making lasting friendships and and what are, like, all those sort of cliches are absolutely Spot imperative. On. You know, that's a, if you're going to do it, you want to do it for those reasons. No, absolutely. Well. Let's delve into your career. You mentioned Shoah Bakhtar there, but let's talk about cricket now, the bit that I'm probably the most excited about. This is <laughs> most re- incredibly repetitive for you, but for the listener, we're going to go through a couple of stats. As, which I can <laughs> okay. back on your face, you're already bored. 100 test matches at an average of 40.9 for England, half of which he captained, 127 ODIs, and eighth on the list of England all-time run scorers with over 11,000 runs. Now, those are just facts and figures. But, you know, you sit there and you think about that kind of thing. Do you ever reflect on that in a way and you go, you know, you just sit back and go, I am actually incredibly damn proud of that. Or, you know, you go, because you have to just sit there and think, actually, do you know what? Because a lot of people in this, I think English people in particular are not willing to celebrate success in a way that perhaps other countries are or nations are. So I think it's really important to celebrate such immense success. Um, with that, not in an arrogant way. I would never, I would never expect that. But I just think it's so important. Do you, do you, I hope, I hope that you do because you. No, I do I, I, definitely, and, and most particularly for me because you know I was never a, a superstar cricketer. You know, at any level, at any stage in my in my life. You know, I was playing at school and I was playing a bit for Oxford under nineteen. But you know, I don't think anyone ever saw me as probably being a, a Test cricketer full stop. So to make my Test debut felt like a a massive bonus and then to score my first hundred and then, you know, it all felt like upside to me, if I'm honest with you. Um, you know, I do remember um, quite early in my England career sitting down with the, the psychologist at the time and, and putting some goals together. And, you know, I don't know if this was a, a healthy thing or an unhealthy thing, but in my mind, I kind of said like, you know, if, if I had to be really greedy, I'd say I'd love to play a hundred test matches and score 7,000 runs and, you know, maybe have an opportunity to captain, England one day so you know to tick all of those off the list and then obviously you know to, to have those incredible successes in Australia in Ashes series or whatever I, I felt like I've achieved everything I've wanted to and more and um, you know I'm very grateful that I had the opportunity in the first place uh, you know pretty humbled that I was able to do it and and, and of course I'm proud I mean I you know I, I love to be able to I was going to say show show what I did to my, my kids because occasionally you get those sort of reruns on on Sky and whatever and my skid, my kids seem to have very little respect or interest, you know, and they're like, oh, Dad, you play like an old school cricketer and all that sort of <laughs> stuff. But um, but still, you know, I'm sure they're proud of me on one level. <laughs> of course they are, of course, of course. I mean, let's go right back to the beginning. You mentioned there the, uh, the Oxford T uh, under-19s. You played domestic cricket for Middlesex and you briefly touched on it there as well. You kind of set, were setting smaller goals, perhaps season on season, and then you, you'd say one thing. And then, but when you got into professional cricket, you weren't necessarily, the first couple of seasons, you weren't necessarily hitting massive scores and averaging enormously. What were your initial goals as you entered professional cricket? Did you have an overall goal or was it actually, as you say, smaller goals and then hitting that one and then making the next one? Yeah, I think the, the big thing for me was getting a contract in Middlesex in the first place because if you're outside the system, it's quite hard to get in it. So, uh, you know, I had to do a few trials and whatever. I was lucky uh, when I got my trials from Middlesex that I, I, I scored runs straight away. And, uh, you know, it just so happens that if on another day I might have got a good ball and it never would have happened. 
Um, once you're in the system, you know, then I, I think it gets much simpler. You, you're, you're part of that um, that environment, that institution, and you look at what's next for you. So I was looking at all the other batsmen in the second team and saying, look, you know, I need to be doing it at least as well as these guys. And then, you know, aspirations to get in the first team and then, you know, aspirations to be a cap player and blah, blah, blah. And you, you kind of know what the next step is. Um, and uh, f- for me, you know, I'm very competitive. I want to do well. And so when I when I saw people like Mark Ramprakash and Justin Langer and Angus Fraser and all these guys that have played international cricket, I was like, well, if they can do it, you know, I should aspire to do that myself. And I, I should push myself maybe harder than some of my teammates and, um, uh, and do everything I can to make it happen. And bearing in mind that for many people it doesn't happen, but that, that was def- definitely my aspiration. And that's, uh, that boils back down to as well, that, that drive that was probably instilled at you from school as well. Yeah, I think it's a, you know, I, I don't sort of tend to overanalyze my psychology, but I, the, the drive for me, it, it's just a competitive drive, really. It's, mm. it's one that I, I kind of... A traditional you know, sportsman's really, approach. Yeah, if I really put myself to something, then I, I feel like I'll, I really want to succeed in it and I'll... I don't want to have any regrets. I'm not one of those people that kind of like, oh, we'll give it a go. And if it works out, then fine. If not, it doesn't matter. I, I kind of want to give more than that. Um, Definitely. And, and I think actually when you, it's changed a bit in these days, but in the, in the 90s playing county cricket, it was a very comfortable, easy place. People used to go out on the piss quite a lot. And it was almost frowned upon to, to push yourself hard. Um, and, you know, I never liked that that environment, and I was always comfortable being one of those that pushed myself harder than others, and that's perhaps why I sort of went past some of my teammates. Well, before long, you found yourself in the England team. Something that I've always been fascinated and curious to ask somebody is, particularly someone in your position, is because you've probably been on both ends of the phone. Is when someone gets their international call up, who is it that makes that phone call? And do you remember your phone call for that first that first call up? And what what how does the conversation go? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I remember like it was yesterday because um, it, it was a complete surprise. I was actually on the golf course with uh, Middlesex just played a game against Scotland. We come back down, and I think we had our championship game on late, later in the week. And then I got a call from David Graveney, the chairman of selectors, basically saying, uh, "You know, I, I'm like, why is he ringing me? Because it, it wasn't like he was on speed dial for me or whatever." <laughs> was um, his contact saved? Uh, I think it was actually. I think, <laughs> yeah, cause, yeah, I think uh, it wasn't like a random number. Um, and uh, and he said, yeah, look, Michael Vaughan's uh, had an accident in the nets. He's he's done his knee. Therefore, we're bringing you in. You're going to make your debut for England on Thursday. And we want you to open the batting. And and um, you know, on the one hand, I was like, holy moly, that's three days away. And um, you know, it just it was a bit of a. It took me a while to get my head around it. On the other hand, it kind of was at my home ground. It was at Lords. I was in great form at the time. I was. At that stage, I think I was 27 years of age. So I felt ready for it. I felt as ready as I was ever going to be. Um, and, you know, once the initial shock subsided, it actually got replaced by real excitement rather than dread. You know, I think some people, they sort of dread the, the, the potential failure or whatever. I just I just thought this is an incredible opportunity. It may only be a one-off opportunity. So let's just, you know, take it with both hands and give myself the best chance and see what happens. Definitely. You solidified your position then after, after your, your debut and then uh, at the top order over the next few tours and before long, the 2005 Ashes were rolling around. Um, and this was, as a fan and as, as a nation, particularly different to previous Ashes series. Something that I'm curious to ask you is, how did the mentality shift in the dressing room so drastically to be so incredibly... like powerful and motivated for success because I I would argue that perhaps a a couple of years previously it it probably wasn't there the optimism wasn't there perhaps what was it in the dressing room maybe it was the structure it was the players the captaincy the leadership that changed that mentality to drive for that success that particular year yeah look I mean I I think you just got to remember back to the the 2005. I mean, we hadn't won the Ashes in 17 years. We we got become very accustomed to being steamrolled by Australia. And there was definitely a sort of inferiority complex there. You know, I think sort of team after team would 
come up against Australia and just get bullied out of the series very early and end up sort of, you know, going back with your tail between your legs. And, and kind of, you know, a lot of English players realised that they just weren't as good as these Aussie guys. Um, I think where we were lucky with that 2005 matches is we had a, quite a big group of players that never played against Australia before. Uh, we'd been on a big, long, really successful run. You know, I think my first eight test matches for England, we won all eight of them. Um, and, you know, Flintoff and Peterson and all these guys were coming in and, and really showing what they could do. Um, and then we were incredibly well led by, by A, by Duncan Fletcher, who made sure we were, we were very well prepared for the Aussies. And then Michael Vaughan, who had a very much a kind of a laissez-faire approach in terms of, come on, lads, we're just going to have a crack here. And one thing we're not going to do is bow down to these guys. You know, if you kind of look at that Australian team as a team of bullies, which I'm not saying they were, but that was just our perception of them. Um, then we had to stand up and look them in the eye and say, we're not going to back down. And, and um, you know, that's that, that was our attitude all the way through. You know, if, if Shane Warne was going to bowl us out, well, we were going to land a few punches before he did so. And, um, and I think that attitude served us really well. Definitely. I, I mean, I look back on that with such incredible memories and I didn't even go to a game. I mean, to have been, to have been, to have been <laughs> yeah, there. But it was when, that the yeah, nation it was really was. moments where, yeah. yeah, exactly. And, you know, alongside that came a lot of expectation and pressure. So it was a hell of a hard series to be a part of. And, you know, we, we none of us were sleeping by the end, you know, felt very fraught uh, emotionally. But, um, you know, without that, you don't get the incredible highs of, of coming out the other side and winning. Well, speaking of a lack of sleep, I want to talk about taking on the England captaincy because I can imagine you had probably a few sleepless nights prior to even taking on the captaincy because at the, when you took over the role, as most listeners will know, that was when KP came out, uh, uh, resigned after only a couple of matches. Peter Moore's sacked. What was that transition into the captaincy like? Did you, I mean, you seem like you're very... Um, take it as it is kind of um, mentality but was there a fragility going into the role were you apprehensive because of what had ha just happened or was it kind of like a clean slate well, I was very apprehensive yeah I mean I think on the surface it, it looked like the worst possible time to take over mm -hmm. the England team you know there were divisions in the team and obviously everything that happened with uh, Ken Peace and Peter Moore so we were without a captain and a coach um and, um, and, you know, I don't think the England captaincy was anything that I, I really coveted. You know, I, I think it was, it was something that I felt um, you, you, circumstances need to conspire for you to be a, a viable candidate, you, you know, and mainly you have to be in good form and your, your place in the team has got to not be in jeopardy. So up to that point, it was always something that might happen in the future. And then it came along and, um, you know, just when it was sort of first muted to me, I was, I kind of like, well, yeah, that, let, let me just have a little think about that and a, a chat with Ruth and whatever, because it, it, you're not just taking on the role, you're taking on a, a completely new life almost. Um, and it's a 24 seven job. But the more people I spoke to, the more I realized actually that the team itself was, was keen to just move on and come back together again. And I, I felt like perhaps being quite a senior player in that squad and, and a guy that most people kind of respected I, I felt like you know maybe I was an op there was an opportunity there for me to sort of bring everyone together and hopefully give them a bit of direction um and you know it was at the stage of my career where I felt like a new challenge probably wasn't a bad thing um so I think when when push came to shove um once Ruth and I had sort of got our heads around the fact that you know that I'd have to commit myself to this for a, a three or four year period then um I, I was really excited and you know as soon as you, you you get excited about it all these ideas come into your head about what we need to do you know who we need involved etc etc and it, it sort of just snowballs from there the way that you talk about it it seems like it's almost a family commitment um you know that you were talking to ruth so um you know openly and almost as of necessity going you know if i take on this role this isn't just me that's going to be taking on this role i'm going to need your support because i anticipate that it's difficult to take a day off mentally to take a day off from the England captaincy. So I imagine you probably um, l relied on your family ultimately. To, yeah, to exactly. Off. You know, we had, we had two young kids, you know, our kids were four and two at the time. So, you know, it's a, it's a big sacrifice, especially for Ruth, who you knew that I was going to be away for long periods. And even when I was at home, I was going to be on the call to Andy Flower, the selectors or whatnot. Um, 
but you know those opportunities you you, you are very fortunate those opportunities come mm. along once in your life and um you can't choose the timing of them um so you know I, I think it was more just about getting ourselves ready for that and stealing ourselves for it um because you know you, you really do need the you, you can't be fighting the 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 sort of family battle as well as the cricket battle you know you, you need the family all aligned behind that and um I, I look back on it and I, I think it's the best thing I've ever done in my life you know it taught me so much about myself about people around me about high performance about you know what works what doesn't work you know effectively separating the fact from the fiction in terms of all these things you hear on around you know marginal gains all those sort of high performance things that you hear you know i think until you actually go through it and have to be the one making the decisions um you know you don't really fully appreciate what it is being skipper of course it's it's glorious when you take the front and center as the leader with the success and the series wins and lifting the trophies but with, with being skipper you take the responsibility for the losses and the negativity and particularly facing the media as well were there moments as as England captain where where it did feel too much, and did you ever get to a point where you were reconsidering the role yourself? Uh, you know, I think probably the the positive element of my temperament is that I'm pretty calm and, and mm. contained and laid back. So uh, you know, I, I sort of didn't get too highs with the highs, and I didn't get too lows with the lows on a team basis. You know, as long as I felt like you know, people were still listening to me and I, I hadn't lost the dressing room, which I never felt. Um, I think the times where it came problematic is when I, I wasn't playing well myself. And then you have that whole kind of like weird thing going on in your mind around, you know, I'm trying to lead by examples, but but I'm, I'm a bit of a passenger in the team at the moment. And, you know, uh, it, I, I've got to do what's right for the team. And am I is it right that I'm still playing the team or whatever? So, you know, I think in the last year or so of my career, that, that affected me a bit. Um, and, you know, no one likes to be a passenger. No, no one likes to feel like they're not pulling their weight. And um, so that affected me. And, and, and the more it affected me, the more it weighed me down and the harder it became sort of psychologically to, to keep myself going, actually. With such a challenge like that, how, what were your coping mechanisms and what were your techniques? Because, of course, I spoke to some of the boys that I have recorded with on the podcast and international cricket is all about performances and to stay in the team, it is performance-driven. But, you know, when you've got the, the, the banner of skipper, it's difficult to, you know, literally be dropped from the team, so to speak, if it is performance-driven because you are the man that's leading the team. How did you deal with your kind of negativity drifting in, perhaps? Yeah, well, I think the first last couple of years of my career, I worked very closely with uh, the England psychologist at the time, Mark Borden, um, and actually, you know, experimented with a lot of things. But the, the most helpful thing was mindfulness and meditation. You know, just quieting down the mind because there was so much going on up there. You, you I was thinking about team selection, about tactics, about my own game, about retirement, about blah blah blah, family, kids. And so just being able to quiet the mind down and just let those thoughts pass, uh, you know, uh, just just allow myself to calm down emotionally was hugely beneficial and something that I've obviously used uh, a lot uh, subsequent to that as well. This series is brought to you by two magnificent sponsors, Ascot Group and McGill and Partners. Ascot Group is a global speciality insurance and reinsurance group with a record of underwriting excellence and superior claims service. Founded in 2001, the company provides a broad range of property and casualty solutions to customers worldwide through its platforms in London, Bermuda and the United States. Ascot is a long-standing supporter of charities with a link to sport, including ongoing sponsorship of the Great Britain Wheelchair Rugby Club. With a recent increase in mental health awareness, the company is particularly proud to support Headstrong Season 5 and Innings With, which focuses on the psychological well-being challenges that arise from professional sports. McGill & Partners is a boutique insurance broker, helping corporate clients find specialist solutions for their most challenging and complex risks. Growing rapidly since its launch in 2019, the company operates in the UK, Europe and the United States and prides itself on working with some of the biggest companies in the world. And you can find out more on their website, mcgillpartners.com. 
McGill and Partners understands high performance and the mental health challenges that can be associated with it, regardless of the industry people are working in. The company is fully committed to their employees' well-being and are delighted to be sponsoring the Headstrong podcast series. It is also delighted to support the Ruth Strauss Foundation. Thank you to these two wonderful sponsors. So that's really interesting about the England captaincy. Now, there are probably a couple of times, and it'd be, I, have to, I have to talk about it, and I hope, I hope you don't mind me talking about the, the, uh, in the, the management of KP uh, in the dressing yeah. room. Because I can only imagine the challenges myself. I've never been a captain. I'd like to see, see myself as a leader, but obviously perhaps not in the cricket field, but maybe that comes down to ability. <laughs> um, but dealing with personality versus skill, was it worth it off the pitch? That's, I mean, I know that's a million-dollar question, and particularly with hindsight, it's difficult to answer that. But how do you manage both the um, performances on the pitch, but then off the pitch... Because ultimately, you can't necessarily... I know that they're being paid to play international cricket, but it's still their life and they're allowed to do what they want in the public eye. So it's difficult to find yeah, that balance. I mean, I, I wouldn't make the distinction sort of on pitch, off pitch. I, I don't think that's mm. the way I viewed it. I, I viewed it very much as what are we trying to achieve as a group of people, right? And are we all bought into that? Um, and, and if we're all bought into that, then actually having difference in the team, having different ways of looking at the world is a good thing. You know, and something that should be celebrated. Um, and so, you know, for the vast majority of my time catching uh, KP, he was excellent. Yeah, especially given, bear in mind, that, you know, he'd been sort of removed as captain and he had access to grind with the ECB and all that sort of stuff. So, you know, for the vast majority of the time, he was absolutely fine. Uh, we got on well. There was a time at the end there where I felt his agenda and the agenda of the team were not aligned and he was trying to do something that was right for him and that was actually detrimental to the team and that that was a big issue to me and that's that's kind of the the background to to how everything went went wrong in the end um and i think it's always right to ask ourselves the question you know could it could we have managed it differently could we have managed it better um i i definitely feel like i could have done a couple of things differently i, I definitely would never absolve kp from you know, his share of the blame and everything that went on there because, um, you know, uh, that, I don't think that would be right for me to do so. Um, but, um, you know, I, I think when I look back at it, the vast majority of the time I played cricket for, for England with KP, it was a really happy time. And he did brilliant things for England. And he was a fantastic player, probably the best I ever played with. And England got a lot of benefit from it. He got a lot of benefit from it, and it, everyone was aligned. It was just when those aligned, that alignment wasn't there that the issues started coming in. Absolutely, and I, I think one of the things that I wanted to talk to you about now is that that transition transition for you when you when you left international cricket as a player, you found yourself in the sky box for a period of time, um, but then you you found yourself as a part of the ECB, and you probably had to find that new balance with international cricket and all the new franchises. You know, we're looking at the IPL, the Big Bash, and I think that, that, may, that that's certainly where you probably saw, uh, I don't know, I don't want to take words out of your mouth, but you perhaps saw from as a player uh, and that managing KP, because I think particularly he wanted to go out and play the IPL, and that probably didn't align with the England agenda at the time. But now it's so fundamental for players to almost see that as a platform for them to do it. And I know that you were so fundamental in the England uh, team to help facilitate, you know, changing the calendar around. So how important is it for those players to get that experience out on, in these franchises, even if it doesn't reflect the Red Bull cricket? Well, I think, look, uh, so, I mean, I came in as director of cricket with the agenda to win the 2019 World Cup, and I knew our players needed to play franchise cricket to, A, I think, overcome that sort of slight inferior inferiority complex we had with white ball cricket but also be to put themselves in pressure situations as the overseas player needing to perform with you know a lot of money riding on your back you know I felt that was a good way of replicating the sort of pressure we get in the world cup so you know that agenda that I had was very different to the agenda that the um the guys involved with ECB had previously which was much more around test cricket um I think in these days actually what I increasingly come to realize is that players actually get energized by by being in different environments mm. and so you know back in the, the the day the ecb was saying like you know 
well, if they're going to go to the IPL, they're going to be tired and they're going to want to be rested and blah, blah, blah. And, um, and ultimately, that's not going to be good for, for English cricket. And actually, I think over time, what you realise is it, it, probably, it probably is a good thing. It refreshes, re-energises, allows them to speak to different people. They come back a, a little bit more kind of refreshed and ready to go because, you know, if you're playing international cricket all the time, it's, it's a pretty... It's a treadmill, you know. You're on that treadmill 300, 350, yeah, you know, 320 days a year. So it, it kind of, um, I think, just perceptions of those franchises have changed a lot over the last ten years. Definitely, it's so incredible to see, you know, the likes of, for example, Sam Karen going out there and getting the opportunity to play with the in- India captain. You know, yeah, who, who you wouldn't have thought that ten years ago when you're on the in- international cricket scene and doing the circuit. It's just incredible to expose players to others and and you le- ultimately learn from them. Uh, well, you, think- yeah, a you learn, but also you know I think for someone like same Sam Curran, that's a great example of you know I don't know he's probably done two years worth of maturing in the space of eight weeks there. You know, just yeah. being surrounded by those people and you know he, him being given the responsibility of both bat and ball. You know, that's just. It's, it's proper gold dust for him. So uh, he's a great example of why that makes a big difference. Definitely. Now, in that administration side of cricket, you, you had been out, out, out playing for a while, but was there a yearning to be on that pitch or were you just be grateful to be immersed in that England community set up once more? Because I know that commentating wasn't quite the same. Yeah, I, I enjoyed the commentating, but I think, you, you know, the, the slight issue of commentating is it's a bit Groundhog Day-ish in the sense that, you know, you, you're, you're sitting there watching what's going on and, you know, sure. and, and obviously calling it. Um, I, I think what I, yeah, I suppose I've always liked to challenge and I've always liked the idea of learning new things and, um, and that director group job gave me that opportunity to do so. Yeah. I, yeah. Of course I like being involved, but actually you're not involved in the same way and, and your relationships with the players aren't the same as they used to be. Um, so I had to sort of learn to separate myself from them a bit. Uh, but, uh, yeah, look, it was four great years or the three and a half years, great years of director of cricket. And, um, you know, I obviously would have loved to have seen it right through the world cup, but, um, you know, personal events transpired to make sure that didn't happen. Uh, and, that does bring me on to, as we mentioned at the beginning of the show, I'm incredibly thankful to you to be uh, supporting the Ruth Charles Foundation. I really want to um, talk about um, Ruth, if that's okay with you. Yeah, and just Because I think it's such a fundamental conversation because if these things are never talked about, it's just, it's a conversation left unsaid that ultimately should be. Um, yeah. And you were in Australia on tour when you learned that Ruth was... Um, was diagnosed with stage four cancer. And I can only imagine your immediate thoughts were to be with, you know, straight back in the UK and by her side. But can you remember that where you were told and those immediate emotions? Yeah, well, I mean, it wasn't quite as simple as that. So I was in no, Australia sorry. and, you know, and Ruth got, um, you know, she went to, to see a doctor about uh, a couple of issues she had. And, and they, they said, look, this doesn't look good. We, we, we need to do more tests. And that's when I came home. So, yeah. you know, I was there with her when she got her diagnosis. Um, and it was well, utterly shocking. There's no other way to describe it. it was, I mean, we were, yeah, I mean, uh, it's the worst news you can ever have. Like, you know, A, she's got cancer, having been fit all her life. And B, it's stage four, so it's incurable. So at some stage, she's going to succumb to this. And, um, you know, the, the thought of dying hadn't entered either of our heads ever. Um, and then you start thinking about the kids and, you know, all the, all the things you want to do in life and what the, what this journey is going to be like from now on. Like, you just suddenly, your life is completely different. And, um, you know, I was in bits. Ruth was much stronger than I was. You know, she, she was, like, incredibly accepting of it. You know, I, don't, I still can't, for the life of me, quite understand how she managed to get herself in that frame of mind of kind of like, okay, well... We know what's ahead of us, and let's let's just take it day by day, and blah blah blah. Um, but it it is horrendous news, and it and it's bear, it's worth bearing in mind that you know for forty thousand kids in this country every year have to deal with the, the prospect of losing a parent from cancer. So you know the, our experience is not a a new one, uh, um, and it's not a one that was unique to us. There's so many people who go through it, but. Obviously, we don't tend to hear about it that much. And it's a personal journey that people go through. And I feel like one of my jobs is to kind of go to people like, you know, this happens and 
we need to prepare ourselves for it. We need to obviously do research into these rare forms of lung cancer, which uh, Ruth had, uh, non-smoking lung cancers. But also we need to help prepare families for the death of a parent because it's it's going to happen. You know, we none of us want it to happen, but it, it, the reality is it's going to happen. I mean, grief is a word that so many people will shy away from. And you found yourself in the position of raising your two boys whilst grieving the loss of your wife. Whilst the support of your family and friends and, of course, your loved ones was immense, how indispensable was professional help for you? Yeah, hugely. I mean, I, I just feel like with the best will in the world, people that haven't been through it really can't offer you much advice. It's like, you know, and without being sort of going off too much on a tangent, it's like going, asking someone who's never played cricket how to open the batting in a test match. Like, you know, they, they, they might have watched some cricket and they might mm. be able to give you some advice, but unless you've been through the nitty gritty of it, it it's just impossible to really empathise fully. So um, I found myself gravitating to people that have been through it themselves. And obviously, you know, the, the counsellor that Ruth and I used, Jenny, who'd had 30, 40 years as a child grief and loss counsellor, you know, just to have her give us some direction to, look, this is probably what's going to happen. This is what you're going to feel like. These are the things you need to think about. Uh, just so, so incredibly valuable. And, and just to feel like I, we had that person there as a source of counsel was, you know, for, for Ruth before she died. And then obviously for me after she died was, was hugely important. And talking of value, I can only imagine that after the, the aid of treatment and, as you say, the incredible mindset of Ruth, you were graced with some incredibly valuable time together as a family. How important was it for you to say just no to everything else? I mean, because you realise at that time what really is important and you actually then realise how completely and utterly, um, I don't want to say pointless, but, you know, cricket is. It's just a game. It's just a game. Of, and yeah. people are playing bat and ball. And, but, you know, with, with news as, as serious as this, you were given, you know, almost a, a, a reality check in the sense that cricket is just a game. You don't need, it's not as important as the, the family and the relationships that you, you spend with people and bond, bonding time with your family. Yeah, I, I think that's right. You know, and I think, um, you know, it's almost going full circle to, to what we're experiencing at the moment with COVID. But, uh, um, you know, I think my, my whole professional life had always been about work coming first and the family fitting around work. Um, and, you know, it was only in the, those sort of final 12 months of Ruth's life or probably even like the final nine months where, you know, we sat down and went, this can't be the case now. You know, it has to be work fitting around the family, you know, and we have to spend some time creating memories and 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 getting our priorities right. And, it, and I suppose you walk away from that going, well... Well, you know, why does it have to take someone being diagnosed with an incurable illness for that to be the right way round? I mean, you know, there's a pretty strong argument that it should be right that way around all the time, um, or certainly a balance between the two. Um, but I don't know if we do that enough. And, um, uh, you know, maybe, maybe this COVID crisis allows people to do that a bit more as well, like, you know, working from home a bit more and understanding that there are times where you really do have to switch off from work and, and be engaged and connected with your kids and your family. You know, I, I feel like that, that's something we, we need to take seriously because otherwise we'll all have regrets. I've got no doubt about that. I mean, you, you mentioned there as well the, the work that you did with the counsellor that you worked with. And as we know, seeking advice from GPs or, and counsellors and, and professionals, in my opinion, is often seen... Or not, sorry, not my opinion. You know, people often see it as uh, acceptance of defeat, which is a, a real shame. The way that society's built that up, but it's most definitely a sign of looking forward to move, move as an individual, improve your own mindset. What, what was your specific uh, approach? How was how was your day to day mindset built up? Because I know that it was um, that careful balance of dealing with the past and then the future and the present. Yeah, well, I think, uh, you know, my instinct was always to like, you know, you know, let's cross that that bridge around death when we come to it. Let's not overly worry about it now. Let's let's just take each moment as it comes. Whereas Ruth, Ruth's mindset was very different and, and you know, and she was very open and honest. She said, look, I, I can't just um, let it go. I, I, what I need to do is make sure that I'm as prepared as possible for it, that you and the boys are as prepared as possible for it. And then... Once I know that's taken care of, 
then I can um, I can actually enjoy living my life. And um, and it's a, you know it's a bit like that sort of thing that hangs over you. You know, you've got an essay to do or you've got a piece of work, and until you actually do it, you can't relax and enjoy yourself. And it's a similar thing to that. Like us actually doing it, going to see Jenny was like a massive weight off both of our minds. Uh, Ruth felt much better about it. I felt incredibly, hugely better about it. And we were able to actually, you know, address the elephant in the room, which we'd been sort of avoiding for probably nine months up to that point. So, you know, uh, my advice to anyone who's facing a similar situation is, um, you know, you'll know when the right time, I'm not saying you have to do it as soon as you're diagnosed or whatever, but there will come a time where it's weighing on your mind and don't, don't just let it weigh on your mind. Do something about it. Be proactive about it. You won't regret it at all. Um, and it will help both you and your family to, to be much better place to deal with what's to come. You know, and we always try and obviously, you know, we don't like to see our, our kids going through pain and we, we want to protect them. But this is not something you can protect them from. You know, they have to go through it with you. And this, this comes down to, as well, the really important work that the Ruth Strauss Foundation does because we see grief and death in our culture and society as a bit of a taboo. And I know that that's something that you're really keen to challenge with the work that you do at the Ruth Strauss Foundation. So how are you bringing up that conversation and making that less of a taboo? Yeah, so I think that there are a number of things. I mean, yes, we, one of our objectives is to to have that conversation about death and be open and honest about it and, and having this conversation with you is one way we do that. Um, but what, what we, we also want is, you know, our, our primary motivation is around research into rare forms of lung cancer, but also pre-bereavement support for people. So helping fam- families when they're facing the death of a parent to get that professional help they need. And so right at the moment, we are, we've launched a pilot study um, to help, train healthcare professionals to offer that advice you know because actually there's a real deficit of expertise there and and most people are very uncomfortable about talking about death because they're they're not trained in it they're worried about saying the wrong thing or giving the wrong advice and obviously it's very emotive you don't want to get it wrong so you know there's a bit of an education process that we need to go through as a starting point so that's that is uh, that's incredible that the Ruth Strauss Foundation is committing to that. What does twenty twenty one see for the foundation then this year? Because it's yeah. so challenging. Because I was speaking to some of the team, and of course last year it was so diff- different in terms of how, how you were raising funds. But the days that you do uh, in cricket uh, wearing red is beautiful to see out on the on, on the ground. But what what else could can we see in twenty twenty one with such uh, important work that you do? Well, I think, you know, on the fundraising side, there's still quite big question marks as to when we can start doing fundraising. And, you know, we'd be very hopeful that we'd be able to do something similar to what we did last year with the Red for Roof Day at the Test Match. Um, you know, we still still conversations going on about when that's going to be at the moment. Um, uh, on the actual us helping people side, you know, I, I think as a starting point that there are ways that people... Um, we can give direct support through our website. You know, if people, if people contact our website, um, the pilot study will be well underway and we're hoping to be rolling that out as soon as possible. Once we get the right set of results back on it. Um, and then we've, we've got all sorts of ambitious plans around both the research and the support side moving beyond the first six year, six months of this year. I mean, we're obviously conscious that, you know, we're right in lockdown at the moment. And, and so timelines, it's always a bit tricky to know how quickly this is going to all move forward. But, um, you know, it's a passion of mine. We need to do it. There's a gap, you know, people aren't getting the support they need. And I'm, I'm just determined to make this foundation something that Ruth would be proud of. So, um, you know, we're not going to let, let up in our efforts. We're going to be redoubling those efforts over the next uh, three to six months. And as a listener, uh, apart from being able to donate to such a wonderful charity, what else can can we do, can I do, and, and anyone else do to contribute to to the foundation, but also to the topic of bereavement? Well, I think, you know, first of all, just have a read of our website, because I think there's quite a lot of information on there, including, you know, if you want to fundraise for us. And, uh, you know, the fact that you're, you know, you, you are supporting us with this podcast is a great example of, you know, there's so many different creative ways in which people can help us in our mission. Uh, of course, we can't do it without money, but we also need 
you know, more support. We need people to, you know, um, take on challenges for us. Sometimes we need people to help us run the business um, in terms of volunteering, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, all I'd say is we try and keep in contact with people as much as possible, either via the website or if they, you know, if they sign up with us to, to receive our information and whatnot. And, um, you know, what we're trying to do is create a bit of a community of people that, that all believe in what we're trying to do. And, um, you know, hopefully we can do that. Well, I for one hope that we can have crowds back um, at cricket. So we are, I, I might be able to attend a Red for Ruth day. I'd be so, so excited to go to something like that because I can only imagine the, the uh, atmosphere at something like that. So fingers yeah, crossed the crowds. Yeah, fingers crossed. Because um, yeah. I know, I know. I mean, I know that the, the it was so powerful anyway. But having having a crowd there must just lift it by you know even more so. Um, all the best with everything. Um, Thank you. With the foundation, and I'm so happy to be supporting the foundation. But just before I uh, before we end the podcast, I ask this question to every guest that comes on the show, and I'm curious to to hear what you have to say. What does the word headstrong mean to you? Um. That's an interesting one. Um, so, you know, I think on its, um, w- when you first mention that, headstrong sounds like someone who is almost a little bit too, um, kind of almost too clear in their thinking, you know, that, that I, we, I have certain ideas and therefore I'm going to plow them through. But then I think if you think about it in a bit more detail, you know, I think what it's talking to, to me, is a bit more around resilience. You know, and I think actually, um, I don't know. I mean, I, I always look back at my time as a cricketer and whatever, and people ask me what, what's the, the greatest trait someone needs to be, to be able to succeed as an international cricketer. And I always say it's about resilience. You know, you've got to have that strength. You've got to be able to – it's not about not having bad days and bad times because we all have that. It's about bouncing back from those and finding a way to – to navigate your way through the tough times in life. You know, that, that's what I suppose head strength is to me when you say it in that context. And um, that's what we're trying to do with the Rooster House Foundation. It's what I'm trying to do with my life and with my kids' lives. And, um, you know, I, I think COVID's forced us to do that more than perhaps ever before. Definitely. I really like that answer. Thank you very much. Um, Andrew, Absolutely. thank you so much for, uh, for coming on. Um, I will obviously keep you updated on all the, all the podcasts that I record. Hopefully all the, all the funds that we can raise for the Ruth Strauss Foundation. Probably not as much as Red for Ruth Day, I've got to admit. Um, but uh, well, every we're, we're, incredibly, we're incredibly grateful and I really appreciate you thinking this. And hopefully we can get you to that Red for Ruth Day. Bring on the vaccine and we, we're not far away. Absolutely. Look, enjoy, enjoy, uh, enjoy the sun, enjoy homeschooling and um, all the best and we'll, we'll speak soon. Thanks so much for coming all on. All right, brilliant. Thank you very much. We are supporting the Ruth Strauss Foundation with Headstrong and Innings With. Sir Andrew Strauss lost his wife to non-smoking lung cancer in 2018. Just before her death, Ruth and Andrew discussed the idea of setting up a foundation to help other families who would be facing a similar ordeal. The Ruth Strauss Foundation wants to ensure that all families with dependent children facing the death of a parent are offered emotional support and guidance to prepare for the future, allowing them to make the most of their time together. In tandem, they are driving the need for more research and collaboration in the fight against non-smoking lung cancers, which are on the rise and to which Ruth ultimately lost her life. You can support their cause by making a donation today. To donate, text RSF10 to 70191 to donate £10. Or you can donate online at virginmoneygiving.com forward slash fund forward slash headstrong forward slash RSF. Thank you for all your support of Headstrong and the Ruth Strauss Foundation. And that concludes Headstrong Season 5 and Innings With. Thank you very much to Sir Andrew Strauss for giving me his time to chat on this podcast. I really appreciate everything that he said, and I really hope that you found it insightful and indeed inspiring to listen to such a legend of the game, but also such an incredibly generous and grounded man. If you have enjoyed this series and you've missed a few of the guests, feel free to scroll back through the catalogue and have a listen to some of the other legends of the game. That's it for me 
on this series. If you have enjoyed it, please do leave a rating, a review, and do hit subscribe. Season six is well underway in the works, and I really can't wait to bring that to you soon. For now, though, thank you so much for joining me on Headstrong, and I hope you stay safe, stay well, and I wish you all the best. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.